0: Think you hate marketing? Think again. I'm Kelly, and welcome to the Marketing Chat Podcast, where I help you get moving with your marketing with way less stress and way more fun. In my interview today, I'm chatting with Dr. Aaron Ahuvia about his new book, The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. It's about the psychology, biology, and evolution of why we love things. I'm so excited about this interview because I adore all things psychology, biology, and evolution. And Dr. Ahuvia is the world's leading expert on brand love, which is the practical application of this book. As a brief introduction to the interview, I wanted to share a few comments I got on Facebook. I asked my connections if they have a thing in their life that they love, almost like a person, because that's what this book explores how we do love some things and some brands almost the way we love people. Here's what my Facebook people had to say. One person said that they love the antiques in their life by using them. Now, they know that this is a use it or lose it thing less than a love thing. Dr. Ahuvia discusses a concept like this in his book, which I bring up in the interview, about a woman who stopped loving her iPod after she stopped using it. So... Absence didn't make the heart grow fonder, absence killed her love. Someone else comments that they love their Jeep because it represents the best qualities in their life and in them. This goes to the idea that we tend to buy things that represent who we are. We love things that are part of our self-concept. This is a key part of Dr. Ahuvia's book. One person wrote that love is based on our idealized concept of a person or a thing. They wrote that we fall in love with the idea of the thing more than with the actual thing. This is also something that comes up in Dr. Ahubia's book when he notes that people tend to stay happily married when they maintain an idealized version of their partner rather than a more realistic view that includes their flaws. One person noted that they love everything about music, writing it, performing it, listening to it. To them, it seems like their love of music is greater than their love of people, though they acknowledge not really, because people are challenging, as in people find fault with them, put demands on them, and can just be annoying in a way that music isn't. Yet again, this is something in Dr. Huvia's book when he discusses the unconditional love that we seem to get from things and animals. Finally, two people note on my Facebook post that the English language lacks the nuance that some other languages have concerning different words to signify different types of love. This is so true. We throw around the word love when often we may actually mean like. So has love lost a deeper meaning in English? I highly recommend Dr. Ahubia's book, link in the show notes. And I hope you love listening to this interview as much as I loved conducting it. I can't tell y'all what a thrill it is to have on today's guest, Dr. Erin Ahuvia, the author of The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. It's branding, it's psychology, it's biology. Y'all absolutely must read it. Aaron Ahuvia, PhD, is a professor of marketing at the University of Michigan-Dearborn, College of Business, and the most widely published and cited academic expert on non-interpersonal love. He's published more than 100 academic papers and conference presentations, and his research has been quoted in Time, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Glamour, and major publications in Europe and Japan. Dr. Ahuvia has also appeared on public radio talk shows, as well as popular television shows, such as The Oprah Winfrey Show. Welcome, Dr. Ahuvia. I am so happy you're here today. Thanks. It's great to be here. For the past 30 years, your work has been focused on what you call brand love. In fact, you're the leading expert on brand love. So what is brand love?
1: So there's lots of different kinds of love. We've got romantic love. And then we've got familial love, you know, for your family or parental love for your kids. Brand love is, it's love, real love, but it's love that people feel for brands or products or services or other things that marketers are interested in. You mentioned non-interpersonal love, which is a little bit of a mouthful. I was tried for years to come up with some good name for this, but that's just... (laughs) you know, love for things, every anything that isn't a person, basically. And brand love isn't scientifically different from that. I mean, it's not a big difference between loving a a product and loving some other object. But when you talk to marketers, it helps a lot to say
0: brand love because then they understand. So how it connects to what they're doing. Totally. Yeah. If you just say, I think love of things to a marketer, especially considering in your book, you talk about like a sunset or animals. That's not going to resonate quite as much with marketers as brand love. Yeah.
1: They don't always, people don't always make the connection. I was at a design conference some years ago, speaking at a design conference. And a guy, one of the cocktail parties, came up, recognizes me from the poster as one of the speakers and says, Oh, you know, what are you going to be speaking on? And I said, Well, I'm going to be talking about the psychology of love. And he thought I was joking. So he said, Really? Oh, okay, I get it. Peace, love, and happiness. And I thought, well, you know what? I all I've been researching for my whole life is peace, love, and happiness. So he was he was said it jokingly, but it was really, it actually happened to be kind of spot on. It's true that people don't always make the connection, although the the connection is really there. Because yeah. it's the difference, one of the differences between the way a very old school, not a new economist, economists today are a lot more sophisticated, but your sort of stereotype of the old school economist of like people buy a pencil because it writes and that's all you right. need to know, right? <laughs> it's the difference between that and the way marketers look at things, because marketers have never seen things that way. Marketers have had to deal with real consumers all the time, yes. and so marketers have always been a lot more sophisticated to look at other kinds of things that, that affect you, whether consumers buy your product or not. And so brand love is, is one way of getting at both the functional benefits, but also the other kinds, that other stuff that that's so important.
0: I love that you go into both in your book. You do talk about the emotional and the rational. And you're so right. When I went to business school in 1998, my finance and economic classes, they were still talking about the rationality of buyer behavior. And I was arguing with them then about, no, people do not act rationally. When they buy things, absolutely not. And they were like, no. And so I had to answer on my tests and papers using rational theory. And it just, oh, my God, no. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So some people argue that you can't love things, that you can only love people. And now, obviously, I disagree with them. And I've read your book, but since my listeners might not have, would you share your thoughts on whether we can love things?
1: Yeah. So this is one of the first things I want to address. There's no question that people say, you know, I love this. I love that all the time. So the the, the, the question is, do they really mean it, you know, or, or not? And it turns out if I ask people, You know, when you say you love your car, right? Do you really mean it? I mean, do you really in the strongest, most literal sense of the word mean you love this thing? Or are you just sort of using the word loosely? Mm. You know, you get a lot of both, right? But about 75% roughly of people that I've talked to have at least one thing that isn't a person that in their mind they see as real true love in the strictest sense of the word, not saying that they can't be wrong. People can, you know, be wrong. People can think they love something and not, or they, you know, I have a friend who told me the story about the first time he fell in love with a woman, he had met this woman at camp they were both counselors at. He was telling his friends about her and his friends were like, oh, you've really fallen in love with this person. And he's like, no, I haven't. And then he looked back at it and realized... I guess I had, I guess my <laughs> friends knew, right? They could at my voice and I wasn't even aware. So, you know, you can be wrong in your own mind about whether you love something or someone, but if you're getting 75% of the people who all insist they love something, they're not all wrong. I mean, it's, 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 it's gotta be happening there someplace. And there's actually something to learn even from the people who just use the word loosely as as all of us do sometimes. Because if you when I look at what do people really mean, what I find is when people say, like, oh, I love your haircut, I love your shoes, what they really mean is that's an excellent haircut. Mm-hmm. Those are excellent shoes. So mm-hmm. they're evaluating the, the quality, you know, the performance of that. And what that tells us, if 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 people use the word love as a metaphor for performance. It tells us that that is something that's very important to the actual and experience of love when they talk about brands, that sort of performance. So in many ways, if you've got a product or a brand and it's kind of mediocre, it's really going to be hard to get people to love that. Like step one is having something that people think is excellent because that is so central to what love is when it comes to brands Mm -hmm. that that's sort of the way they use the word when they're just using it loosely. And in fact, when people do studies, there's a really interesting series of studies that have been done by a lot of different people where they'll have put people in a MRI scanner to scan their brain, and they'll have the person think about and look at a picture of a person that they love, and then they'll have the same thing, have them look at a product or a brand that they love. And one of the things they find that's different, is that the parts of the brain that relate to judgment and evaluation are much more active when people look at a brand or a product that they love mm-hmm. than they are when they look at a person that they love. So we can be judgmental. You know, when you're dating, you can be sort of evaluative of this person that you're dating. But in most contexts with people that you love, you're not so evaluative. But with the products or the brands, people are evaluative. So that's sort of step one. But then the exciting and interesting stuff is all the other stuff. Because that that only get, that gets you like one step in that direction, but it does not take you all the way there. And so it's, it's the rest of the stuff that gets you there that I think is the
0: most interesting. That is fascinating. And an example that you used a few times in the book about a brand is one that I was immediately thinking of before you brought them up, and that's Apple. Yes. I am a huge Apple fan, all things Apple, MacBook Air, iPad Pro, yep. a watch, iPhone 13, <laughs> all the things. Yep. I use all their software. Yep. They own me. Yeah. They own me. Yeah. And okay. I've even contemplated, what would it take, what would they have to do to lose me? That's you know, like it would have to be something massive ethically. Yes. On their part to lose me. Right. I just love and adore. I'm going to use that word. Yeah. How. All of their products work together so seamlessly. The software, right? It just everything connects. I do something on one device and it happens on the other. Yep. It, it's love. Yeah. <laughs> it yep. is. And, and, and adoration and verging on idolatry, which I think <laughs> you, you go into a bit with them in the book. Yeah. And like, I do judge and there is some rationality there but you know mm-hmm. because when the, i i do evaluate you know right. and and i evaluate them as excellent right. but it it's love yeah it totally is. absolutely and, and
1: and and it gets to a lot of the other aspects mm-hmm. why people you know why brands now apple is Without question, the most loved brand, at least in the United States yes. uh, that i'm that I'm aware of. When I ask people, you know, Apple comes up, I did a small survey. It was not a representative sample, but a small survey of six hundred people asking them, just like name three brands that you love." And uh, Apple was loved by far more. Then yeah. you know the next. So it was Apple, then Nike, then Samsung. I think. Oh wow! But there was a big gap. Actually, what was really interesting from that—you forgive a tangent—it was really interesting from that survey. Was okay. So we've got this graph. You can sort of imagine the graph, and, and the higher the number is, the line is that's more people who say they love that thing. So you got Apple up here, like. With you know a couple hundred people saying they love Apple, and then you've got Nike with about you know sixty percent of that, and Samsung with like forty percent of that, and then it just falls off, and then you've got seven hundred other brands with one or two people, mostly one person saying they love that. Wow. So with the so like you get a few brands like Apple, Nike, you know, and some others. Uh, Samsung, some others that that do have a big sort of following. Mm-hmm. And then you've got an enormous number of brands that have just a few people that love them, but that number is not zero. Yeah. Right. And so, like, for I, I really come to think that just about every brand out there, there's somebody who yeah. loves that brand, right? Whatever yeah. it is, right? But it's very few people. And so there's two lessons from that. One is, you know, if if you're not, you happen to be not Apple, Nike or Samsung, right? Somebody out there does love your brand. It's possible mm-hmm. for somebody to love your brand because people are doing it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it's it's not enough right now to make a difference for you financially, mm-hmm. right? The companies that can make it work, like Apple and Nike, make st- astonishing amounts of money. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, for the rest of you, it's possible to do but it's not really being done. Yeah, there was a, a study I I saw in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago, and it, it it found that Apple globally made ninety five percent of all profits in the smartphone market. Now. Apple does not sell anywhere remotely near 95% of all smartphones. Right. Especially if you get outside of, you know, affluent Americans, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of other brands sell a lot more smartphones, but they make 95% of all the profits. And it's because they have a higher markup on their products. And I ask my students, they're like, well, the other brands should put a higher markup on their product. But, you know. Listeners realize, well, yeah, they could, they could raise the price, but people would stop buying it, right? Yeah. You know, Apple, Apple has that cachet and, and people that love. buying it, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. and that that is the power of having
0: people love your brand. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So this may be a marketing podcast, but I've got degrees in anthropology and biology. So I want to talk biology and evolution for a moment, Excellent. if we may. One of the things that happens during love with a person Mm -hmm. is that the biochemical oxytocin gets released. this happens, for example, in romantic love, when we meet our newborn baby, and like particularly with breastfeeding. Ah. So has research found that oxytocin plays a role in brand love?
1: Yes, but not as much of a role. So okay. it's easy. It does play some role, and there are studies that show that that oxytocin does play some role. And I imagine this is not coming from studies; it's just my personal experience. You know, all sort of my take on the research. I think it depends a lot on the brand. Mm. There are some brands that really provide people with a sense of comfort, mm. and I can see oxytocin. I have a hunch playing a warrior, this sort of warm attraction. That's sort of the oxytocin feeling. I yeah. can see that there. And then there are other brands that people love for other reasons. And maybe it doesn't play such a big role there, but it, do, it is measurable that it's playing some role. Mm-hmm. However, I think that the core thing that sort of unites our love when we love a person with our love when we love a brand isn't so much the oxytocin, it's more of a cognitive psychological thing that's going on. And that is you're taking the person. So when you fall in love with someone romantically, you, that you're merging identities with that person to a certain extent, right? You're obviously, you're still yourself. They're still themselves. But you have this sense that the two become as one, right? Mm-hmm. That you, yeah. there's, there's a merging of the unit that's going on there and that i think has evolutionary roots so if you look back at what love is one of the things that i've learned that fascinates me is that i thought that people were just about the only species maybe some other primates that loved but actually there's lots of species out there they don't love their experience of love is not going to be identical to ours mm-hmm. but they do things that look and sound a whole lot like love and that anthropologists, excuse me, biologists call bonding, you know, to separate Mm -hmm. it a little bit, but it's very similar. And this bonding is completely tied across different species to the way that they have and raise or don't raise their children. So lots of animal species, and insect species don't raise their kids, right? The right. female, like salmon, lays five thousand eggs. The male salmon comes and fertilizes them, and that's it. Both their parenting duties are all done at that point, yeah. which I gotta admit has a certain appeal to right. it sometimes. <laughs> but, um, it's not the way humans do things. No. Nope. Right? So species that raise that don't raise their children in that way don't have this kind of bonding. Right. Either with each other or with the the offspring, whereas species that do raise their children, as lots of species do, have this kind of bonding that comes into love. And so what is that doing? Well, there's got to be some psychological mechanism that evolved that gets the parent to make sacrifices on behalf of the kids. You yeah. get some food, you share it with the kids. Yeah. Something dangerous is there,
0: you protect the kids from this dangerous thing. So you're making on, the sacrifices. Only way for the kid to survive and then the species. Exactly. And so
1: wh- how might that have, a, those behaviors of, of caretaking and protecting, how might they have evolved? My personal theory on this is that animals had a set of behaviors for feeding themselves and caring for themselves and protecting themselves. And they've got some mechanism in their brain that says, look, this is you. And the other stuff in the universe is something that's not you. Right. right? So you know what you are. You don't eat your own tail for lunch. Right. That's (laughs) you. You got to treat it differently. Well, if an animal, for whatever reason, had some sort of a change or a mutation that led them, instead of just thinking that their self was their body, mm-hmm. it led them to think that, "Oh, these other kids, my offspring, they're also me, then mm. all of those behaviors, feeding them, protecting them, what have you, would come quite naturally. And so that merging of identities is a way that the brain sort of instructs the animal to take care of these other things, these mm-hmm. other offspring or what have mm-hmm. you. And so in humans, it's the same thing, right? You fall in love. You have the sense of merging. And then to the extent that you feel that sense of merging, you're much more altruistic towards the person that you're in love with. You care about them much more. You worry about their interests and their happiness more mm-hmm. because they're a part of you in this larger sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's also really true when we fall in love with brands. Mm. Fall in love with brands. When you fall in love with Apple, you don't just own Apple. You are an Apple person. Yes. Right? Yep. It becomes a part of your identity. Your identity emerges. And you can tell that's happened with a brand. It's super easy to, to tell because if people like insult a brand that you don't care about, <laughs> you're like, whatever, sure. Right. But if right. you love Apple and somebody goes like insults Apple, you feel personally offended, you get angry. (laughs) Why would you feel angry and offended? It's because Apple is a part of your identity and you feel that you have been at some level attacked by these criticisms. And so when brands wonder what's the difference, why is it when when somebody says something bad about a certain brand, people who own that brand rush to social media to defend it, right? Whereas in other cases, you know, someone will bad mouth a brand and nobody will say anything. Well, well, that's the difference between having people, consumers who love your brand mm-hmm. and see it as part of their identity versus consumers who just use your brand because it has some practical benefits.
0: That's great. I love that, that theory, that concept. Similarly, HBO Max merging with Discovery Plus mm-hmm. at my other podcast, Geek Girl Soup, We are a little bit offended at the changes happening at HBO Max because it's our favorite streaming service and we promote them all the time. And we're taking it a little bit personally that they're dumping all of these shows. And it's like, wait a minute, but that's a reflection of, of us, of our podcasts, of our personal identities. What are you doing? What are you doing to us?
1: Ah, absolutely. And, you know, what you said there, usually having people love your brand is a very, very good thing. Mm -hmm. They spend more money, they want to pay higher prices, they tell other people how much they love it, and they're evangelists for your brand. But there are times it's like the, I don't mean to say, say, make a sexist reference, but the phrase, you know, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, right? Right. But right. hell hath no fury like a consumer who really was in love with this thing, who then feels betrayed. So
0: I'd like to show a, fi- actually, I'd love <laughs> to show a figure from your book sure. that's called Aspects of the Love of Things. Mm-hmm. And if you're listening to this, you can look at the figure in the video on this episode's page of my website or in Dr. O'Havia's book. So we'll describe it, though, as we go. So let me pull that up here. Yeah.
1: This started with several qualitative, very extensive qualitative studies that I conducted where I interview people asking them if they love anything or any brands, and if so, what are they? And then we just talk about them for hours sometimes and i then i go through and i figure out what are the sort of consistent themes that i'm hearing between a lot of people you know basically there's a lot of people saying the same thing what are they talking about so i came up with a list of sort of the common elements that people have in their experiences of loving brands or products or other kinds of stuff and then i also worked with two colleagues rajiv batra and rick bogosi they're both at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business Marketing faculty. And together we created a measure, a scale, there's a group of questions that you can ask someone and based on their answers, determine whether they love something and if they do, how much they love that thing. And actually, if you're if you're curious about the scale, there's one in the book, there's a version, you can take a little self-test there. And I do, when I do consulting, a lot of times what I'm doing with companies is I'm taking the scale that I developed and then customizing it to make it particularly appropriate for their brands to really get exactly at how they can measure love for their products and their brands. Because there's always a little bit of tweaking you need to do to this thing. Mm. But this is the general model. And if people say, you know, love is complicated, I have to agree. Love is yes. complicated. <laughs> it's got this is a complicated model. It's got a lot of parts. And I wish I could tell you love was simple. It's just these two things or three things. But you know, I, I don't get to make up the data. It yeah. really is a little bit more to it. So we can go through these.
0: Yeah. So this is it's a heart-shaped figure. And Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't spend too much time on it because I have a few more questions for you. But I guess what I'm most interested in, because we were just talking about self-concept. And so that's right in the middle, Mm -hmm. uh, the four aspects of Mm self-integration where the, the four things are current identity, desired identity, life meaning, and intrinsic rewards and frequent thoughts. Right. And then on the outside, you have at the top the three aspects Aspects of positive emotional connection, Mm -hmm. three things there, the three aspects of passionate involvement Mm -hmm. beneath those you have on one side, excellence and on the other side, long term relationship. Mm -hmm. And at the very bottom, tragic if lost. So, again, yeah, like you just said, this is very complicated. So I'm not asking you to simplify, but
1: (laughs) I could easily walk through this. I'll, I'll, I'll give an example. We were talking about apple yeah. Earlier, a lot of people love that. Let's just use Apple as an example as we go through this. Great. So, the first starting point, as I mentioned, for most people is excellence. You know, they think this brand or product is really good. So, that's one of the features. And these are just going to, this is just a list of the attributes that people have in their mind that together create the sense of loving a, a product or a brand. And all of this, you can trade off. Like if you're a little higher on one, you can be a little lower on a different one to get the sort of overall average because they don't all exactly apply to, to every product or every brand. But it starts with excellence. And then from there, you get these sort of positive emotional connection to the product or the brand. And that comes through having positive feelings about it. And this sort of just intuitive sense that it's right for you. Like you start using it just feels right. And from there, you start to get more involved with the product or a brand. So we've got the different aspects of the sort of passionate involvement. It's not like someone is forcing you to be with this thing. You want to be with this thing. And so you have this passionate desire for it, and you're willing to invest resources. So a lot of times when people love products They'll say, you know, I bought it and then I modified it in a certain way. Mm. I changed this. I customized it. I made it better for myself. And so there's a willingness to sort of work with it and invest in it. And then that causes the sort of long-term relationship. And so this isn't always true. Sometimes you'll love something. It'll be something you just discovered and you don't have any history with it. But on average, statistically, a, a lot of times, when people talk about brands or products that they love, they are things that they've had a long history with, and they intend to have a long future with it as well. Mm -hmm. And part of what that long-term relationship does is it helps make it increase the sense that that it's a part of who you are, that it's integrated into your identity. It's not just something you own, it's something that you are that reflects you in some way. And so there, there we get to the four parts of, of a person's identity. So the current identity is just how you see yourself now, your desired identity, obviously how you would like to be in the future. Then we get the two that are a little more surprising. One is frequent thoughts. And this is something is very interesting to me that the, we used a, a mathematical, a statistical approach called factor analysis And it takes a lot of these different sort of aspects of love and it puts them into groups statistically. And it was interesting that this thing that people say, oh, I know I love it because I think about it, it keeps popping into my head Mm. like all the time. Mm -hmm. That went together with these identity issues. And the reason it does, I believe, is that's one of the ways your brain takes something like, okay, the brand Apple or your cell phone, and in order to make it a part of your identity, your brain has to do work and all that thinking about it is this is really the work your brain is doing as it takes that brand and makes it a part of your own sense of identity so another aspect of having a brand or a product be part of your identity is the sense that it makes your life a little bit more meaningful in some way that might sound like a pretty high bar like this brand makes my life meaningful, it isn't going to be the most important thing, right? Your children, your spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, maybe your job, you know, if you have other sorts of religious or political commitments, those, you know, aren't going to be the big things. But products do in in a smaller way, help people feel that their life is more meaningful in certain ways. And love is a deep experience. Love is profound. And many times, even if a product is excellent, people will feel they don't love the product Mm -hmm. because it doesn't connect with them on a deeper level. It just Mm -hmm. seems superficial. Many brands are trying to create those deeper connections and they do it by saying, our brand represents certain values that people hold very strongly right and so for a lot of brands like nike often those turn out to be progressive political values mm-hmm. for some brands like chick-fil-a they're conservative political mm-hmm. values it's questionable you know at a practical matter whether aligning your brand with political values is necessarily smart because it always it turns off a lot of people On the other hand, I do understand why they do it, because if you want people to love your brand, connecting to their deeper values is an important part of that. And that's what I think these brands are, are trying to do there. The last thing there is intrinsic rewards. And this is really important. Intrinsic rewards basically means that people enjoy the experience of your brand. Or your products, it's not just like well, using this thing is a, is unpleasant, but the result I get later is wonderful. Mm. If people feel that way, they may value this a lot because that result that's wonderful is terrific for them. But they won't love it. Mm-hmm. In order to love something, they have to find the experience a positive experience. That's what I mean by intrinsic rewards. When you put all that together you get the last part, which is tragic if lost. This is one of the things I hear most frequently in my interviews. I'll say, well, tell me about something you love. And they'll say, you know, I guess I don't really love that because you know I could live without it. It wouldn't be so bad if it went away. It doesn't really matter to me that much. And I can live without it is is a funny phrase. I remember one person I interviewed saying, you know, I really love these games that I play with my friends because I couldn't live without them. But food isn't that important. I could live without it. i like, really? No, I think that's backwards. But what it tells me is that they don't mean I couldn't literally live without right. it. It's really important to me. And it's important to my sense of identity. Yeah. If they didn't have that thing that they love. They w- would be a different person, yeah, well, so the person they are could not exist without that because it part- mm-hmm. its part of what makes them who they are. Yeah. I-, I think that's really what they're getting at with the with
0: the sort of tragic if lost aspect that's great. Thank you so much. And, yeah, this is really helpful for brands. I mean, it I think this this works for people, but it's really great for understanding brand love. and how we can use this in creating brands that would lead to love of our brands as well. So thank you so much. So you mentioned something in the book called Relationship Warmers. Would you explain what you mean by that, please?
1: Yeah, sure. So let's go back to a question you started with, which was, can people really love things other than people? And my initial answer, which is correct, is yes, they can. But it's also true that, no, they can't. And so Mm -hmm. that obviously sounds like a contradiction, and it is something of a contradiction, but it's one of the most interesting things I think I found in my research. And so what I mean by, no, people can't love things other than people, is that love did evolve specifically for people, right? Every yeah. time that a behavior evolves in an animal or a person, let's say a fear response,
0: mm-hmm.
1: part of the fear response is like what happens: your heart beats faster, and you know all these things. But part of it also is what's going to trigger that, like what's going to make you afraid. Yeah, and those triggers are never perfectly accurate. Because they're just through random mutation, right? So Mm -hmm. some years ago, I was in Israel, and I was walking through the desert at night, and I saw a giant spider, really huge. And I got really scared, but I had to walk that way. It was on the road. But then as I got closer, I realized it wasn't a giant spider. It was a potato chip bag. Had gotten stuck under a rock and was kind of blowing and in the wind a little bit and moving around in a certain way. so <laughs> I had this I had this fear response, but it was not to the right thing. It was not yeah. calibrated exactly there. Yeah. and so, as love evolved, it really did evolve just for people. But in the same way I got, you know, scared of a potato chip bag, mm-hmm. we fall in love with things that aren't actually people. But our brain is sort of equating them with people in some ways.
0: And we're primed to love, just like we're primed to fear, because as we're evolving in the savanna or in caves, we needed to be hyper aware of those scary things that could kill us. And today we get scared too easily because there we don't have those triggers, those real triggers anymore. Right. Right. And and in that same time that we were evolving
1: while there were certainly threats you know mm-hmm. from spiders or other kinds of right. things out there right the biggest rewards for us and the biggest threats to us were the people that we lived with right they could help us or hurt us more than anything else out there in the environment so right. as our brain was evolving it evolved to really focus on people there are actually parts of the brain that are specifically for thinking about people. If you see a chair and you want to figure out, you know, identify what kind of chair it is, your brain will do that in one part of the brain. And if you see a person's face and you want to remember who that person is, it will do that in an entirely different part of the brain that's designated, you know, like reserved for people, right? Yeah. And Love is the same kind of thing. It's reserved for people. And we know this because we have this word objectify.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: What does it mean to objectify a person? It means to think about that person as if they were merely a thing, Mm -hmm. meaning there is some way that we normally think about things, right? And we don't want to do that with people. We get that wrong. So, but just as we can sometimes objectify a person and think about a person as if they're a thing, we can do Mm -hmm. the reverse and Mm -hmm. think about a thing as if it's a person. So this happens partly through anthropomorphism. Mm -hmm. So sometimes an object will sound or look like a person, right? Apple has Siri, you talk to her and she responds in this voice like a person. And so when you have that, it's much easier for people to love that brand or product because it it triggers the, you know, I'm a person kind of thing in their brain to to, not 100%, but to a Mm -hmm. meaningful extent. Mm -hmm. However, there are two Other ways, and this is what I call relationship warmers, because if your relationship with products is very cold and practical, Mm -hmm. unless it gets sort of warmed up and becomes emotional in some way. So anthropomorphism warms up the relationship. Another thing that warms up relationships that is very overlooked is what the the great consumer researcher, Russell Belk, called person, thing, person. So. You've got your iPhone. You love your iPhone. There's a relationship between you and your iPhone. That's person, thing. But what do you do with the iPhone? Mm -hmm. You text other people. You call Mm -hmm. other people. It's a link in a chain that connects you to other people. That's Mm -hmm. person, thing, person. And it turns out to a surprising and remarkable degree, that when people talk about products that they love and you get into it, the first minute or two is like me and the object. But as you push deeper, it always turns out to be, well, this object connects me to this person or to this group of people. It may do it in a practical way, like a phone does, you can talk to them. And interestingly, I found in, in one study, the more friends people had, the more they loved their phones. Because like we oh, wow. connected them to more people, right? Yeah. Uh, so it could be that practical, but often it's a symbolic connection. Mm. It's like this item of clothing comes from my ethnic heritage. So it connects me to those people in my you know, who share my ethnic heritage in a symbolic way, but it makes some sort of a connection to other people. So that's yeah. the second one. And what happens there, I should also say, is that your brain sees that brand or product sort of like a person because your brain connects it to these other people Mm. and then it sort of gets a free ride it gets like smuggled in with them into the part you know into the quality qualifies as a person through sort of going uh, being part of their entourage and and going along with the person and the last one that we've already talked about a little bit is that you see it as part of yourself so when you see a product or a brand as part of your own identity you're a person it's a person you love yourself You can love that brand because it's part of yourself. Mm -hmm. That also creates a warmer kind of relationship. So the three ways that people get to have this warm, loving relationship with products that requires this human element is they either think the product is a person through anthropomorphism. They think the product is connected with somebody else or it's connected with themselves. And very often it's more than one of these, some combination of, of more than one of those.
0: That makes sense. That's really fascinating, and just just makes sense. So that people would love, or so many people would love Apple, and it's less likely they're going to love their broom, right? And there's, you know, the broom, especially that gets back to the intrinsic extrinsic thing. If you
1: really like cleaning house, mm-hmm, sure, is a meaningful activity for you. You sure. might love your room. I know people who love their room. Absolutely. But, but a lot of people don't like cleaning house that much. Right. They see it just like, I'm doing it. I want the results, but the process isn't something I enjoy. Right. And so they don't feel that they love it. They're just, yeah. you, there's this expression we have with people, right? right? Do you love him or are you just using him or her? Right? Yeah. If you enjoy your time with the person, you love them. But if you just are like trying to get ahead in your career, you don't Mm -hmm. like spending time with them, then you're just using them. And it's the same with the broom. If you enjoy sweeping, you might love your broom. Otherwise, you're just using it Mm -hmm. in this way. And that's another aspect for for companies that want to increase love for their products is to pay attention to the user experience.
0: True. Yeah. And. Like you said earlier in your research where the vast majority of the love went to Apple and and Samsung and Nike, but there were all of these other brands where at least one person liked them. So definitely there are people who loved them. There are definitely people who love their broom, but a a broom brand is likely not to ever reach the love that Apple has.
1: Yeah. And there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, playing Games on your phone is just more fun than sweeping yeah. the phone. And
0: connects you to other people, like you were just you saying. It connects you other people the more warmers. directly yeah. than the
1: sweeping does, although they can, can see the sweeping sometimes, but really not, not the way a phone does. Another aspect that I found very interesting and was really surprising. Often I would com- ask people to compare two things that they love and just tell me which they love more and why. Mm. The number one reason why people say, I love X more than Y isn't. I have more fun with X. It isn't, it, you know, connects my values in a deeper way. All these things that I would have thought would be the top mm-hmm. reasons. The Number one reason is I spend more hours a day using X than I do using Y.
0: Really? That's so mundane. Why would that be well, so? Well, you tell that story in the book about the woman who used to love her iPod yeah. and then when her commute to work shortened, she stopped using her iPod and that led to her not loving it anymore.
1: Yeah. And I felt like when she told me that, I was like, the poor iPod. It did nothing wrong. <laughs> you know, it didn't, it didn't, you know, yet you no longer love it. I sort of felt, but but it makes sense.
0: I felt bad for the iPod. We were I bad bad, it. I, I felt bad yeah. about it.
1: Yeah. But the reason it makes sense, if it, it was sort of connected for me and, and helped me figure it out is I was doing research and I needed to find a scale, a series of questions I could ask people that I could use to quantify, based on their answers, how close of a relationship they have with another person. Mm -hmm. So how, you know, and and obviously people we love, we feel we have a very close relationship with, with those other people. And right there, whenever I found these scales that psychologists developed to measure how close two people's relationships are, the first question is always, how much time do you voluntarily spend with this other person? Mm-hmm. And just the amount, the sheer quantity of voluntary time that you spend with the other person has a lot to do with whether you feel you have a close relationship. And that's what I think is going on when people say, I spend more time with product A than I do with product B. It's like, I have a closer relationship because I spend this you know, increased time with them. Yeah. And one last point here that I think is interesting. Apple has done a really nice job of being part of many different aspects of our life. So I've got like the Apple TV that I watch at night. I've got my phone, but I've got my laptop. Some people have a watch. Right. And because it has these different products and they're all really visibly the same connected with each other. Mm-hmm. All that time, so Apple gets credit for all of those interactions, not just the phone and not just the TV. Right. Whereas there are other brands that might have a lot of different products, but they may be under different brand names, you know, from right. the same company,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or the connection between the products isn't clear in the consumer's mind. Mm-hmm. So the consumer, you know, might value the you know, I get a good buy stove does well, and my refrigerator does well, and my computer does well, but they never put together that their stove and their refrigerator and their computer are all part of the same company and should create a stronger relationship with that company.
0: Yeah, very true. Yeah. All things Apple play well together. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So getting practical for just a moment. What is the difference between your approach to brand love and the approach of most consulting firms?
1: Most consulting firms, I'm sort of a little sad to say, when they develop their definition of brand love, they got their people together and they all talked to each other and they figured out what they think brand love ought to be. And the problem there is that even if you come up with something that seems to make a lot of sense to you, uh, it often does not overlap with what brand love actually is, what it means mm. for people to actually love a product or a brand, because love is is a real psychological phenomenon. You can't just decide what you think love is. Love is going on in people's brains and it has evolved over millions of years. And it's, it has some features that are, that are there or, or not there. Right. So there's a company that shall remain nameless because I'm not out here to like pick a fight or bash, especially with a very large (laughs) company, a well-known company like this. It's a large, well-known survey provider. And they came out uh, a couple of years ago with their list of the most loved brands in America based on this survey. And they did what almost everybody else does is they made up their own idea of love. And then they did this, you know, measured all these different brands and they came up with their top 50 brands. And it was horrific. Apple was not anywhere on their list of the, top, of the most loved brands. It's, it's what? like far and away the most loved brand. It just wasn't, didn't even make the top 50. And most of the brands that they said were the most loved brands in America, when I asked 600 people to name three brands that they love, and they came up with this enormous list of brands, those brands weren't on that list. I mean, I had bizarre, obscure little brands. I had 700 different brands that, you know, one person was mentioning. But for for this list of brands that this other company came up with, not a single
0: person out of these 600, not even one person would mention that brand. So it was without going into detail, like what were some of the general ways that they Qualified love, they, you know, they or they defined love. like repeat purchase. Oh, God. Um, and they, but were that can be at, based on
1: practical need. Yeah. They were looking at as they saw it social responsibility, how socially responsible as they defined it. That social doesn't
0: automatically lead to love,
1: right? It does not automatically that can lead to love. respect. It can, it can, it's nice, it can help carry a deeper connection, right? your as a company, it's not your definition of social responsibility. It's the consumer's belief about yourself that matters, not your definition and how you measure it. Right. So um it was it was just wildly off. And you see that a lot. So yeah. the difference is what what I've done both first by myself and then again with Rick Bogosi and Rajiv Batra when we developed this measure is I start with actual human beings, consumers. Mm-hmm and talked to a lot of them in great depth about the things that they love and figured out what are people, what's this actual phenomenon? What is it out there? And then built measures off of that that reflected that. And they do, the measures work really, really well, really well. And there was actually a a study done, published in one of the, the very top journals, Journal of Consumer Research. That was not by me, was not by a sort of a brand love advocate. It was by folks who were interested in in sort of other related constructs and other related measures that might predict brand loyalty. And so their question was, what's the what measure predicts brand loyalty the best? And they had a bunch of different alternatives, and they determined that brand love was the most strong, the measure that was most strongly connected to brand loyalty, which was nice because usually whatever you know, if you study brand love, you think brand love is best. And if you think study satisfaction, you think satisfaction is best. Right, and whatever. of course. But this was nice. You had people are studying attachment and came out and said, well, actually brand love seems to do a little better yeah. than, than what we're
0: talking about. So. That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. yeah. So is brand love really relevant for most brands? I think it depends on the brand strategy. It mm-hmm.
1: depends on the brand strategy. So.
0: There's a very
1: viable and often successfully used sort of low involvement strategy, which is you get your product everywhere. So it's really convenient to buy Mm -hmm. and you get consumers to have a general positive feeling about your product. Like they they think it's it's a good product, some positive mental associations that they connect with it. And then you give them a coupon or you put it on sale. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you don't, maybe you try and have a little bit more of a premium brand. But in any event, it's sort of overall value for money and convenience and high awareness. They, they hear a lot about. it, you advertise a lot, right? Yeah. So that's, that's a, a very viable, low involvement strategy mm-hmm. for companies. There's also the much more high involvement strategy. And that is, we're going to get consumers to really care about our product. We yeah. want them, if it's not available in the store they're in, to go to a different store
0: mm-hmm. right, to
1: get it. We want them to be willing to pay a price premium. We want them to buy it even if it's not on sale or mm-hmm. not on end of aisle display or yeah. you know all those sorts of things. So if you are trying for that more high involvement strategy, then brand love, I think, is the way to go. Yeah. It is... It taps into people's real pre-existing brain to structures in their brain, the way the human brain works, that you know come millions of years before there were brands, right? Are very much embedded in there, and it works using in a harmonious way the the way people's brain and minds exist already in the way they they work already, to create the kinds of attachments that, that marketers are trying to create with the brand. I will say that there are a couple of misunderstandings that are really easy for me to know why there's a misunderstanding, but that re- can be relevant here. And, and one is, a lot of times when we use the word love, what we mean is this very, very strong relationship, right? It's like stronger than liking. It's a different thing. It's a very strong relationship. And people do love Apple that way. It does happen for some brands. And I will say for, you know, Samsung, I know people who love Samsung that way. And, you know, Lululemon for a while yeah. had like crazed people really crazy about it. But for a lot of brands and a lot of industries, that's probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so it is understandable that they might think, well, brand love isn't relevant for me. Yeah. But what we found in, in our research, this is again with Rajiv Batra and Rick Bogosi is that it's really all relative. So if you are in an industry where the whole industry, everyone has fairly low levels of the sort of emotional connection, you just need to have more than your competitors. True. You don't have to have as much as Apple. You don't have to have as much as Lululemon. You just need to have more than the next guy. Yeah. right? It's like that old joke about the the two the two folks in the woods who see the bear and, and one starts putting on his shoes. right? And he's like, you can't outrun that bear with your shoes. I don't need to outrun the bear. I just need to outrun you right. Like, you, don't, you don't need you know to outrun Apple. You just got to be faster than the alternative. You got to be more loved than the alternative, even if it's a fairly low level for everybody. Yeah. So it can be relevant in that way to a, a lot of different companies.
0: That's great. So do you have a few tips on how small brands can use brand love to boost their brands?
1: Yeah. One option that's available for some brands, although, of course, not all brands, I talked earlier about how anthropomorphism, right? You have the product mm-hmm. that kind of looks like a person or it talks like a person. People, if the brain sees it as a person It makes it easier to love this brand. Well, if anthropomorphism, a brand that can look a little bit like a person or product, if that helps, just imagine what a real person will do.
0: Mm.
1: So a lot of brands, a lot of smaller companies, that are built on sales, like actual interactions between the human being and another human being, that's going to be the strongest source of brand love. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the brand gets connected. You're a small company, so they really see you, the owner, the entrepreneur. You are the company for them. Right. And so your personal relationships with people and I know I'm not the first person telling you this. If you've got a small company, you should know this already. Your personal relationships are the relationships that people have with your company. They are the relationships that people have with your brand. right? Mm-hmm. And so being able to find and, and work with those relationships in a good way is going to create a lot of brand love for smaller companies. Another aspect that, that, that works out there is sort of finding your smaller company, finding those people who already love you who are likely to love your brand, finding the people you're really right for. And so a lot of marketing isn't convincing people to love your product. It's finding the people who are going to love your product. Mm -hmm. And that's a a big job, but it's an important job for a a lot of smaller companies. Mm -hmm. So those are just two, there's more, but I think for smaller companies, those are particularly relevant pieces of advice.
0: Absolutely. That's great. Thank you so much. This was just awesome and so fascinating. All my listeners need to read your book.
1: Thank you very much. Anybody who feels love needs to read yeah. the book, right? <laughs> if love isn't something in your life, then, you know, it might not be for you. Right. Right. So I, sure. I appreciate the plug. This was a wonderful opportunity. I really enjoyed speaking with you excellent questions. And I, I loved being able to get into really a little bit more depth, more than just the two second answer, because love is, is, is important. It's important for businesses as well as the rest of our lives. But you know, love is complicated. And it, and it often takes more than a, you know, a
0: 15 second answer to, to have people understand what's
1: going on. So I appreciate
0: absolutely. It. Well, I'm thrilled that you took the time to be here. And how can people find you online?
1: Last name is Ahuvia, A H U V I A. It would be Huvia to remember <laughs> Ahuvia. Okay. So <laughs> that's great. There aren't a lot of other Ahuvias out there, but no. I also have a website which is thethingswelove.com. So that's pretty easy.
0: Awesome. Well, I will share that link in the show notes and on this episode's page on my website. And thank you so much again for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. And thank you all for being here today. I would love it if you would leave a positive rating and review. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone. I'll be back in a few days. So I'll see you next time on the Marketing Chat Podcast.